and welcome back to Victoria on Relay FM. I'm Quinn Rose, and I didn't go to art school, but I still love to learn about art. And I'm Betty. I also didn't go to art school, but I am actually currently going to architecture school. And sometimes we get to learn about architects who also do art. So today I'm going to be talking about something that I had to do for homework. Oh, man, I love that. You've got to let your homework do double duty wherever you can. Yeah, I mean, I already did this. I I released a YouTube video back in December that was basically a video version of my uh, history paper. Um, So then this time I had to. So recently for uh, my architecture studio course, I had to research some presidents. So some buildings and designs of like other of architects uh, and I this was one architect I had to do research for and then I'm uh, discovered that she also makes art and art installations and stuff so I'm like perfect I will talk about this on pictorial that sounds incredible I'm so excited to learn about this so yeah so today uh, I want to talk to everyone about the architect slash artist um, Elizabeth Diller, also sometimes known as Liz Diller. So a lot of the work that I'll be talking about is like it's not just her a creation. Obviously, she works for an architecture studio. Um, she's one of the founding partners of the company Diller Scofidio plus Renfro. Um, it's a very long name. So if I'm talking to the company about the company in the pod cast I'll probably just say DS plus R and the name of the company is three of the partners which includes two of the original founders Elizabeth Diller being one of them Um, there's also a fourth partner who recently uh, became one of the four partners but anyway a lot of the works that I'll be talking about is primarily driven by Diller because she is one of the uh, partners who's the most uh, involved in the art and our installation aspects of the practice. So uh, hence why the podcast is mostly about her work, even though um, some of the other works involve uh, contributions from other designers and artists and um, others uh, at her company. Uh, But anyway, so in general, uh, before I move forward, um, I guess I I just want to ask, like, have you heard of her? Because she is actually like one of the most famous architects in the world right now. But I do also know that like architects is like a architecture is also a niche topic in some cases. Yeah, I cannot say that I have heard of her. But I also think probably the only architect I could name ever is Frank Lloyd Wright off the top <laughs> of my head. I don't think I can pull the name of an other architect and he's like the guy. <laughs> so. Yeah, no. And that's totally fine because if you ask me to name like a baseball player, I could probably just name one. And, you know, so it, and even though I'm from Canada, I can probably only name like two hockey players. So anyway. Oh, no. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. So um, but anyway, yeah, that, that's totally okay. And so uh, yeah, I'll just g- give you a little bit of background of her, but I do uh, most of the podcast. I kind of want to talk about some of her, some of her work, because as we mentioned before, you know, she is a contemporary um, architect and artist. She's still alive and practicing. Um, her, you know, life and story is definitely like important, um, but again, like her, she, her life is still happening. Uh, so. But yeah, basically, uh, so her um, company, uh, DS Plus R, they call themselves a design studio, but they are actually quite interdisciplinary. So they are 
these days most well-known for their architectural works, but they actually do everything from, like, architectural design, interior design, all the way to, like, performance and art installations, like electronic media art. And they, yeah, they really just, they have a very, if you go on their website, it's a very broad spectrum of works and they actually in fact started earlier in their careers when um, Diller uh, and Scofidio first founded the company they originally just did art installations they were just doing these very abstract and but still architectural based art installations and then eventually they got more and more like physical architectural work of actual buildings that eventually got constructed and so these days they work on like these huge projects um that are way bigger than what they were originally doing but um it's i think it's important to understand where they started in order to kind of understand even uh how things influence the work that they're doing these days um but one of the reasons I actually chose to research about um, Liz Diller is because I'm personally very interested in interdisciplinary studies within architecture. It's one of those things uh, or one of these industries where you kind of have to have an understanding of other disciplines in order to practice architecture because it's not just about building a building and understanding construction. You also have to know about the people you're designing for, whether it's a school or a hospital or a museum or just even somebody's house. Like you got to understand the people in it and what they do uh, in addition to how the building itself is built. Um, so when I look at... Um, the works that uh, DS plus R does um, it's like the breadth of what they do, I, I think is, is very important to have that um, uh, just variety. Um, and so like, for, for instance, they're most well known for actually uh, being the designers of the High Line in New York city, which I'll talk a little bit about later as one of the works. Um, and then uh, they also did the most recent renovation of MoMA. Um, they've done the Broad Art Museum in LA. Um, they ha- they do a lot of museums and cultural institutions, um, including also the, uh, recently they also finished the, or actually within the last year or two, I think they finished the Center for Music in London. Um, but then also they do things like a uh, this performance piece called the Mile Long Opera, which is this opera that spans a mile long on the High Line that composed of a thousand singers. And then also um, Liz Diller curated a fashion exhibition called Heavenly Bodies at MoMA a few years ago as well. And in addition, she was involved in uh, two of the installations at the 2018 Venice Biennale. So anyway, um, that's just kind of an overview of their uh, of her and, and her practices work. That is so many things. I know, right? <laughs> so, and I think that's the thing is like, so she actually was, um, like I just, I when I was doing research for her, she was named as one of these like top 100 people or something of times magazine and i'm like well honestly she seems like she does a lot so she probably deserves it so yeah this is i mean and i i know as like you talked about there's this whole group of people that are connected with all of this but um even 
even being part uh, and, a, and a major part that uh, of all of these projects, especially as you're saying, like something that is complex as architecture, which requires knowledge of so many different disciplines. I, yeah, I am already impressed. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, and as we go through some of her work, um, hopefully you'll agree with me that I personally really like her work and I find them very uh, impressive and inspiring. Um, but it, uh, I should also mention she has had quite a long career. Um, she was born in 1954 in Poland and actually immigrated to uh, New York with her parents when she was five years old. Um, and she studied at the Cooper Union School of Architecture in the 1970s. And so she actually originally wasn't an architecture major she was an art major so she was just um like taking art classes and one of her electives was an architecture class um apparently it's called architectonics which is almost exactly the same name as the class i'm taking where i'm researching about her um but she was like yeah, there was this class called architectonics. I had no idea what it meant. I was just like, what? whatever is an elective. And then she started to learn about architecture and was like, actually, I want to do this. So ended up <laughs> switching and eventually getting an architecture degree. So again, so she had, um, so she's been practicing since she finished school. Um, so in 1979, and their um, company was founded in 1981. So again, it's that was more than 40 years ago. Wait, yes, that was more than 40 years ago. And then, I, and I should mention the, uh, her uh, part, business partner is also her uh, husband. Um, so they have been um, collaborating uh, since they met at uh, the school back in the 1970s. Um, but yeah, like I said, in the beginning, they weren't really involved in traditional architecture, even though they were both um, architecture students who also eventually became architecture um, teachers. This is actually a side note. What I find is that uh, a lot of people who teach in architecture schools, because they're more academic focused, they tend to make more or they tend to be more um, involved in more of the art installation side of architecture uh, as opposed to the building and construction like physical of uh, physical buildings uh, uh, part and so for me personally the last um like 12 years of my life of, of of my practice has I've been more so doing the like physical construction part and this last year of going back to school has been me taking a look at this other part of the practice and seeing how that like or basically learning about it where I will ultimately end up is still to be determined but <laughs> I think one of the reasons again one of the reasons they were focused more so uh, in the art installation aspect is because that's this was just what they learned about and what they did also um, uh, in their um, academic life one of their um, first uh, projects was was uh, this project called Traffic, and it was a 24-hour installation uh, featuring 2,500 traffic cones in Columbus Circle, New York City, um, and they uh, basically just they placed these traffic cones. They weren't obstructing traffic. I'll just be clear about that. Um, so yeah, there were 2,500 traffic cones that were placed four feet apart. And from actually, um, there's some pictures in that link that was is like a bird's eye view. Uh, it almost kind of looks or 
at least what they're trying to simulate is like when snow falls on a um, city, like it will cover some areas, like usually the grass part, and then not other areas. So they form these like interesting patterns, like uh, uh, when when you're looking at a street or a cityscape. Um, but anyway, it was just a 24 hour installation. It was it was put there, then it was like you know taken away. Uh, so these were some of the things that they were doing originally. So or in the beginning of their practice. The thing that I like the most about this is that the website describes traffic cones as a material indigenous to the site of Columbus Circle. I love that. Yeah. Which isn't technically true, but also <laughs> kind of is. Yeah. Um, which is really funny. It's just, I think that just that framing says so much about this piece. Yeah. And, and actually, this is... A, a part of their practice is it, they they kind of interweave a lot of different things together. It's actually not just about the artwork. Some things uh, that they work on actually also have to do with like um, like words and writing and uh, like incorporating um, things like w- wordplay and things like this into uh, into their work. Um, they they don't. A lot of the work I'm showing you today isn't necessarily that, um, but this is kind of an example of the description of their artwork is in a way a part of the artwork. (laughs) So especially given that there's no permanent artwork that came out of this, it's just photographs of what they installed. I like that. It's almost like a behind the scenes commentary on what it is. So yeah, the next piece uh, is from um, more than a decade later, actually. So it, again, in this time, they were doing a lot of installation works. A lot of them are commissioned by uh, art institutions, mostly in a, in and around New York. And uh, the, so this next piece is called Vice Virtue, and it was done in 1997. Um, and again, it was funny when I was researching her in this architecture class, this particular piece... Um, you know, not, doesn't have that much to do with architecture. <laughs> I mean, it is still design related. Again, it just shows you like all the different aspects that they explored. Um, do you want to describe uh, to the listeners what you see uh, in this particular work? Yeah, so there are a couple different things going on. Um, they're all glasses, like not that you put on your face, like <laughs> that you drink out of. <laughs> um, and so the first one uh they're like a standard sort of circular glass, but they have pyramids inside of them. And one is like an upside down pyramid. So like that the actual holding capacity of the glass is a lot smaller because there's this pyramid in the bottom that's taking up most of the space. Um, and then it's paired with one where the actual glass uh, has like a pyramid um, with the point at the bottom uh, and so the the pyramid itself is filled with the liquid. Um, the first one is a clear liquid, and the second one is like an amber liquid. Then there's one that has what looks to be a needle with a green fluid in it. Um, and and that one, the glass falls down, and that fluid from the needle is injected into the glass. Um, and then finally, there's one that appears to be some kind of ashtray glass so it's a glass full of water but also in the the 
bottom of it, in the base of the glass, uh, there's a place where you can put a cigarette and the smoke comes out a hole in the middle. So it's like, uh, even though there's water surrounding it, there's this kind of like column in the middle that smoke is riding, rising out of. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure why the website is formatted this way. There is actually also a fourth um, glass that's a really tiny picture that will only get bigger if you click on it. But it's a similar one where it's a glass that has what looks like a little like vial that's stuck in it. And it looks like the vial could be pulled out. And inside the vial are a bunch of what looks like like medicine capsules. Um, And so the title of these uh, four works in vice virtue um, is so the first one you described uh, with the pyramid is called reservoir the needle one is called fountain the smoke one is called exhaust and the pills one is called dispensary um, again there like there isn't that much information given in the text but I'm assuming that they're referring to like maybe the liquid is like alcohol or something, uh, and then the needle is some thing you some sort of drug you inject. Um, then the smoke, the cigarette is a cigarette, and the pills I assume are like pills, like medicine pills or 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 like other drugs. <laughs> um, and so it does seem like all of the each work alludes to some sort of addiction uh, or or some sort of thing that could cause addiction. Anyway, I, I, uh, before I um, get your uh, reaction on uh, what you think of this work, um, I do just want to tell a quick funny story, which is one of my other classmates also researched Liz Diller as um, his, um, like, among his inspirations for uh, our project. And he, so for one of the projects uh, or one of the many assignments we had to do was uh, design like a, a t- like a small sculpture uh, that's also inspired by the architect you researched. So my classmate, he designed his own cup based on another project uh, that Liz Diller, um, uh, that, yeah, another project where she designed or her company designed a bridge. So he kind of like mashed that project into a cup um, as his assignment. Um, but what was funny was like he he 3D printed his design and but it didn't uh, they didn't have the filament in the color he wanted. Uh, so he wanted it to be black, um, but it was like gray, a gray filament. So he just he took a Sharpie and he just like colored, <laughs> colored it um, and then so uh, when he was showing it in class, we were like, oh, so can you drink out of it? And he's like, uh, I wouldn't recommend it because I colored it with Sharpie. And then oh our God. teacher was like, well, in typical, like, or, you know, Liz Diller fashion, if you drink out of it, it'll kill you. <laughs> so. That is very funny. I honestly, I kind of like that better than the original works. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, this is like the design elements of, these glasses are very cool the way that like they can be inverted they're they're moving they have all the like the craftsmanship and the ingenuity of the sort of like on an architectural level I think is super interesting the messaging of it is like okay <laughs> like I don't know and again this is this is an older piece of art I just think that um so perhaps like it would have it would have hit different um at the time but I feel like at this point like there's so much art that's like drugs are bad and it's like yeah yeah Yeah. so the next work was actually probably the first artwork 
that I've heard of when I first heard of Liz Diller a number of years ago. Um, and it's called the Blur Building. And and this was probably also the artwork that made them like somewhat famous originally um, that ended up getting them commissions to do bigger architectural works. Um, but so this one is um, was, is a building it's a it's called blur building but it's technically not a building um it was an installation that was made for the uh, swiss expo in 2002 and um it's basically a giant fog making machine so it's nice. this um structure that's built on top of a uh, built on top of lake neuchatel in um uh, switzerland and it basically it pumps water from the lake and it shoots it out as like a fine mist through these high pressured nozzles and then it creates the this like what they're calling like a weather system um in this sort of like bubble around the structure um and so like if you um Again, this isn't this is another artwork that um, has been dismantled because it was built for an installation. Um, but yeah, basically, pict- like when you look at pictures of it, like all you see are these these blobs. It's almost like the shape of the actual building itself isn't the interest point. It's the what it looks like with the fog going. Um, so again, like similar to the other pieces I've shown you, these these are like quite conceptual um but i think the the interesting things about this particular work is like it it's it is literally a building where the i guess i want to say like walls or envelope of the building is like not solid and it's just um like yeah it's just a blur really um from the name of the of the artwork um and and it is it, it is really big and i so i think um like in the pictures like it's it's hard to see people for scale cuz they're obscured by the by the fog but it is it is a really big structure and so uh Liz Diller actually has a TED talk where she talks about this building a little bit and but one thing i did find interesting that she um mentioned is that her kind of inspiration or reason for for making this work is um again this, this is like 2002 she was she's saying like as a society we have this insatiable uh, appetite for visual stimulation like everything has to be in like hd and high tech and she wanted to create something that's decidedly low definition is what the words she used um so she wanted it to be something where you step into it and it's it's visually it's difficult to make out um like what what is there in front of you um and it gives you it creates a, a different experience for your senses yeah and she mentioned like she wanted to create some like a thing but she, the the intent was for the thing to be like formless featureless and massless and you know all these kind of words that she was using to describe like things that are very like ephemeral and not physical anyway thoughts (laughs) i i think this works on multiple levels because there is the level of like artist intent um and like messaging behind it but even without any of that it's really cool to look at it's 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 an architectural achievement um it is a work of 
this is the kind of thing that you look at and you're like, wow, that was hard to do. And it's really big and it's doing a really unique thing. And isn't that cool? And I love really big art. Um, and I love it when humans are like, I'm just going to make something really big. Incredible. No notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, and that's I, I, I would agree. I think, uh, again, I, I think the words um, she used in the TED talk was just she was like I just wanted to make a really big building that was absolutely nothing and I'm like you know what that's great <laughs> so wow perfect <laughs> yeah um, I've encapsulated her the spirit of this perfectly <laughs> yeah yeah exactly there will definitely be people who would be like WTF <laughs> You know, um, and I'm sure there would be even be uh, architects who are like, can you just dis actually design buildings that people actually can go into that actually function as opposed to something that seemingly has no function? Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of ways you can respond to that. But I, I personally, um, I like some of the things that she said uh, in, in the TED Talk as well as in other interviews I've read is what she says, what she wants to do is she wants to challenge the notions of traditional space and conventions and and like find ways to get us to think and to, um, you know, to have conversations about, um, you know, what space means to us and, um, again, what these these traditional conventions are and what it means and so I, it's really it's like what we do here in our podcast like I for me personally I think anything that really gets us thinking gets us talking about like art and form and culture and all kinds of things is productive like I don't like even though haha funny like this is an artwork that is nothing but like it, it really isn't to me nothing it, it it has a purpose um you know although not everyone would agree I'm sure <laughs> yeah obviously buildings that people can actually be in and live in are super important <laughs> yeah. uh big smoke buildings also important in a different way I would say <laughs> So speaking of buildings you can actually go in, so the next one I'm going to be talking about actually is one. So they, like I mentioned, they eventually did get commissions to build actual physical buildings. And this next one is a building that um, I've been to quite a few times, but strangely haven't been to yet in the year that almost that I've lived in Boston. <laughs> Um, it's just kind of hard to get to. Um, so it's the Institute oh <laughs> is the Institute of Contemporary Art um, that's uh, in the seaport area of Boston. And I actually went to it quite soon uh, for the first time. First time I went to it was only, I think, a year or two after it first opened. So it first opened in 2006. And I think I went, went there in 2008. Um, so fun fact, the Institute of Contemporary Art used to be in the same building as the school I'm going to right now. And then I think our school like either bought the building or negotiated to take out, take, um, over a part of it. And this, so I think, I don't know if we were responsible for kicking out the Institute of Contemporary Art or they wanted, they were going to leave anyway, but the, anyway, they left and then this is their new building. <laughs> so, so I was researching about this building in the old Institute of Contemporary Art Building. Wow, I love that. 
anyway, so yeah, so this was um, actually apparently the first museum in Boston to be built in a hundred years, which I didn't know. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of museums in Boston, but uh, I guess th- a lot of them were pretty uh, have been around for quite a while. It's this huge sixty-five thousand square foot building uh, that has. Um, uh, temporary and permanent galleries, and there's also a theater, a restaurant, bookstore, and shops and facilities and offices in there. The building is like it's an art museum, but it's also a, like a public building for like that has public spaces, um, you know, for uh, people uh, to gather and rent out and do events and um, community um, engagement and things like that. So, uh, so it's like it's both you know a public civic building, but also um, what they describe as a place to like have intimate complete, sorry, a place to have intimate contemplative, um, environments for viewing art. So they have to kind of balance, um, these different programmatic needs. Um, and then it's also, um, along the waterfront, like I mentioned before. So there's, um, when you're in the museum, you can, you can see the Harbor, um, from, uh, one side of the building. Um, and so the thing that um, I quite like about this artwork personally is um, I think in uh, the link I gave you, one of the pictures, I think it's like halfway down the page, um, is a picture of what looks like a room. There's like a silhouette of a person walking in it. There's a bunch of computers and it looks like it's sloping down and you just see a window and all you see is water. Um, I don't know if you found that. Um, image yet Mm -hmm. yeah so um so this is i think like the the media room or something where you can view um actually like uh multimedia art and internet-based art i believe um on the computer so uh so this room um is designed that like it slopes down where that window you, you you looks uh over the boston harbor and um, they do a, a, this type of thing in a number of their artworks as well as buildings uh, is what Liz Diller calls using architecture as a frame. So the, they have they will use like walls or structures or something to basically make a picture frame of something outside. And, and quite often is something mundane like water, but they do it in a way that is makes it, in my opinion, more than mundane or, or makes it quite beautiful. Um, and yeah, and what I like about it is quite often the building itself isn't the focus. It's what the building frames is the focus. So it's like using architecture as a background framing structure as opposed to being the, the, the thing that you're supposed to look at. Um, so anyway, that's one aspect that they incorporated as well into the Institute of Contemporary Art. Um, and before I get your thoughts on what, um, or uh, on that specific uh, topic, um, the other thing is, like I mentioned, um, you can see the Boston Harbor um, on the um, one side of the museum, and it's um, the North Gallery. So apparently, originally, they intended to have lenticular glass, which is like glass the where 
you can only see out at certain angles and if you're not standing at the right angle it's the the view is obscured so they wanted to create these again like framed little slits of views into the boston harbor from that gallery but apparently the mayor at the time uh was like no this is really like this is such a great view of the harbor you're not doing that so they weren't so they ultimately never installed the lenticular glass i mean I've been in there. It's really great. You can see this great panoramic view. But she was just like, yeah, well, the mayor wouldn't let us. So we didn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I've been to the ICA and it is a beautiful building. And especially, I think, the way that you can view the harbor um, and the view of the water is one of the best things about this building, especially because it is a space where you have like events and stuff. So you're not just, uh, it's it's beautiful enough during the day, but like I've also been there um, for an event at the museum at night. And then it is like 10 times as beautiful to be there and to see uh, the water at night and the lights and everything. And so um, it definitely works really well for that. Yeah, for sure. I do think like ultimately, yeah, the the framing of the um, harbor and the um, the concept of the lenticular glass is definitely interesting. But I am also glad to be able to get the full view of the harbor from from that. I feel like it definitely would have been a missed opportunity if you couldn't. Um, so I guess in this case, I would agree with what the mayor said. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, yeah, the last so the last piece I did, did want to talk about is probably what is, I think, their most well-known or most famous um, work. Um, of, And this is, again, another architecture piece, but this is not a building you can go into. This is a very long park that you can walk, walk along. Um, did I, have I asked you, have you been to the High Line? I have been to the High Line. So the High Line... Um, was a huge uh, project uh, that they partnered with a number of other consultants, including a landscape architect, um, which is James Corner, field operations, and a uh, garden designer, uh, Pete Udoff. Uh, so it's a 1.5-mile-long public park that was built on the abandoned part of the eleva- elevated railroad from the Meatpacking District to the Hudson Rail Yards in Manhattan, New York. Um, originally, this part of the L train was supposed to be demolished and um, it had been abandoned for decades and it was like a blight in the city which like at least that's what the residents opinion of it was Um, and there was a lot of calls to tear it down because it's so ugly and but there was a lot a bit also a big campaign to to keep it because it, it is the L train is also a part of New York's history and um, a lot of people didn't think it was um, ugly because back in the late 90s, early 2000s, if you walked on it, it, in a way, some people found it like actually kind of beautiful and like peaceful. I think melancholic was the word that was used. Not that it's always a positive thing, Um, but it kind of, it it was this, you know, this industrial um, piece of uh, 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 this long industrial structure that has basically been reclaimed by nature in a way like there was like grass and you know wildlife and and all kinds of um, you know plant life that had like overgrown 
on top of it um and actually you know was quite beautiful but you know it wasn't safe to go up and you can't really use it um so anyway eventually it was commissioned to be renovated into an urban park and um it was actually built in three phases uh the first phase finished in 2009 the second in 2011 the third phase finished in 2014 but actually there was a fourth phase at the end where the rail yards are that was finished in 2019 the concept that uh dswsr took for this their design is what they're calling agritexture mixing agriculture and architecture and combining that uh, concept. So what they did is if you look at the um, overhead pictures of the High Line is they kind of blended landscape and like hard surfaces um, in this like uh, kind of interwoven blending type of way so it wasn't like here's a patch where there's green and trees and here's like a you know a a walking path and it wasn't delineated that way it's kind of like weaves in and out in a way where as you're walking on it you're you're kind of like going in and out of nature or you're experiencing things in quite an organic way um so there's these like long planks that will almost like disappear into um like a patch of like grass where there were uh but then randomly there would be parts of the old um rails that are poking out and then again like it all seems like this natural blend even though it's all carefully curated and planned uh including all of the uh plant life that are on it basically yeah took this like abandoned um unclaimed public space and reclaimed it and used like these adaptive reuse solutions to reuse a lot of the original existing structure um and you know created this park that can be enjoyed by uh new yorkers as well as people who visit new york um originally when they designed the uh the highline they had estimated that maybe like 30,000 people annually would visit the park. Um, so um, the budget to build, the, to do this project was $115 million. Since it's been completed, it has apparently stimulated over $5 billion U.S. dollars and about 8 million people a year visit the High Line. Um, it's basically exploded into this, like, giant success that... Um, has actually even inspired a lot of other cities around the world to turn like abandoned parts of their city into urban public parks. The High Line deserves the credit, I think. I have walked the High Line. It is beautiful. The integration of nature into it is really well done. And it feels like nature really is a part of it. Like, as you just mentioned, a lot of other cities have started to do stuff like this. Chicago's version of this is the 606 Trail, um, which is really great. It was an abandoned rail line, and now it's about three miles of like this, rate this like elevated recreational trail, very similar to the High Line. Um, but it just like doesn't have the same level of nature integration that the High Line does. So awesome resource, still a great little walk to go on or or to use for running and all this stuff but I remember like walking the High Line near around the time that I walked the 606 for the first time and I was like "Mm, okay so this is this is the (laughs) blueprint (laughs) yeah 
and the 606 is like a a less nature integrated version of that um and yeah so it does it does make me jealous (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely and yeah I, i i think it's really great execution and again like they've once again integrated this using architecture as a backdrop to frame into a lot into a bunch of different parts of the high line like there is one part where you can like the um rail dips down a little bit and you can have you can see onto this uh city streets and they basically just framed out this like uh, window like this large window and you can just sit there and watch traffic all day or however much time you're sitting there and I think I when I was there a few years ago I just had lunch there and like watching traffic and it was like quite relaxing um, and again there's lots of other uh, activities that go on the High Line there's you know art installations and um, Diller herself has curated um, a mile-long opera on it um, but one thing that is like I found quite interesting and ironic was when I was researching this, um, there was an interview with her and people all obviously uh, asked her about, you know, the um, lasting impacts of the High Line, which there are like lots of different impacts. But unfortunately, one of the impacts is that it has made uh, created this accelerated gentrification problem um, in this area just because of how successful it is, it has driven like property values up so much that, you know, most people or a lot of people have been forced out, including their own company, apparently, because in the interview, Diller said their their company is actually very close to the Hudson Yards and it's uh, uh, near um, the High Line. I think it's within like a few minutes of walk uh, walking distance to it. And she was saying, yeah, soon we won't be able to afford rent and we'll have to leave, too. So basically, this architect created something so successful that they're still very successful architecture company probably can't pay rent there for much longer eesh that is unfortunate yeah Uh, yeah we need better regulations yeah seriously she does say she's like you know like you couldn't have predicted how successful this was gonna be like obviously she's still very happy and proud of how successful it was um but you know we can't control everything well, I'm sure she's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she, she'll probably be fine. Um, but yeah, didn't really mean to end it on such a kind of bit of a downer note. But um, I still just mostly want to, you know, talk about um, our Diller's, uh, sorry, uh, Liz Diller's artworks. And yeah, through researching her works, um, I had known about her before, but through researching her works in this class, really, it just made me so like interested and i basically just want to talk about how cool some of these artworks and buildings are yeah i really appreciate of everything that you showed me today the amount of range that i'm seeing um and again like obviously that still goes back to what you brought up at the beginning which is that there is a team behind these things um and so obviously when you have different people involved in different things you're going to have lots of different uh, mediums and influences and all this stuff. Um, but still, like, coming back to Diller's work um, as a primary driver of these projects, even, like, from the smallest glasses to these giant buildings, um, and finally, like, a real building that someone can go inside of with the ICA, I knew she could do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but no, but seriously, 
and all of them wow they're so different but they all are so intentionally designed um like i would never guess that these were all done um by the same group of people but i also can see the same level of care that is put into all of them Mm -hmm. yeah for sure great well Thanks, everybody, for coming along for this episode today. If you want to see our show notes, um, you can do that at relay.fm slash pictorial. And you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at pictorialpod. You can also follow me on Instagram at Quinsta Rose. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram as Articulations V. And I'm also on YouTube as Articulations. And speaking of YouTube, we also have a YouTube channel for Pictorial Podcast, and where we upload uh, our older episodes uh, as video versions onto the channel. So for this one, you'll be seeing lots of cool glasses and blobs and uh, balls falling down and buildings and stuff. Thanks for listening, art enthusiasts.